stop talking now. <laughs> ah. Um, if you've got a Bible, you might want to start turning to um, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. We'll be reading uh, verses 9 to 13, Mark 1, 9 to 13. If you haven't got a Bible, no worries. Uh, it'll be projected up on the screen. Just before I kick off, actually, I just, I, as we were standing here this morning, I was thinking um, of inviting Sean up who really over the last year has been our new baby as well. <laughs> and it's great to have Sean in our family over the last few years. And I'm serious, actually. It's been excellent having Sean into, welcoming into our family, becoming very much part of a family. You are really valued, and we really love you. Sorry we didn't bring you up, though. You were too heavy. So good morning. Uh, if you're a visitor here today, welcome to uh, Jubilee Church. I hope you've enjoyed the service so far. Um, um, it's great to celebrate and support and thank Jesus uh, for new babies and family, isn't it? Um, one of the things that's crystal clear, if you like, as you read the Bible, is that God has a real heart and a passion for family, for closeness and for intimacy. And although primarily it's the parents' responsibility, it's our uh, responsibility to raise and nurture our younglings. That's a Star Wars Jedi Knight term, if you weren't aware. <laughs> As though, although it's primarily our uh, responsibility um, to raise our kids, God has placed them in the church, you and me. And so Um, so that we can encourage together, pray for, support these families on the adventure together. So guys, keep praying for us. Keep babysitting for us. Keep (laughs) hanging out with us. Keep, uh, Keep keeping our kids occupied. We really, really appreciate you. So thank you very much. So if you're a regular here, um, you'll, uh, at Jubilee, you'll know that we've just started a new sermon series looking at Mark's gospel, getting closer to the God-man who is Christianity. If you want to know in a nutshell uh, what Christianity is about, you're not going to get a list of rules and regulations. You're not going to get some higher spiritual path to follow um, uh, or a process or a handbook. No. Bottom line, Christianity is about a relationship with a man, Jesus, who has made a footprint in history more than any other historical event or person ever. Do you realize that? And so over the next few months, we're going to be going deeper. We're going to be looking closer, coming face to face, up close, with this man, the real Jesus, the challenging Jesus, the sometimes offensive Jesus, not just a a cardboard cutout, but the real deal. And in fact, that's why these Gospels were written. That's why we're doing it. The Gospels were written to record the facts about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus before, before people forgot about it. They were written uh, during the lives of eyewitnesses so they couldn't just make any old baloney up. So they're not ancient legends. They're factual, they're believable, they're remarkable. But most importantly... They are life-changing, as we've just heard. So, last week, we met John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. Uh, But this morning, Jesus hits the scene. Jesus makes his first appearance. So let's read, shall we? Uh, Mark 1, 9 to 13. 
At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out, Jesus, into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and, uh, and angels attended him. Let's pray, shall we? Yeah, Lord, I thank you for these Gospels. I thank you that they are wor the Word of God. I thank you that they breathe life into our very souls. I thank you they speak of you, an amazing human being, but God in every way. And Lord Jesus, this morning, we want to come closer to you. We want to meet you. Lord Jesus, open our hearts to you. If, if things here offend anybody, if, if they challenge us, Lord God, we are open to you. We are open to you, the creator of the universe, the God who loves us, the God who pours out your Holy Spirit into us. Amen. So when we read the Bible, um, we don't often feel the power of the punches that the writer is often delivering, do we? We don't see the depth. Uh, of what he's trying to get across. To many of us, this, this passage is actually very familiar, possibly over-familiar. But, but to the readers of Mark's day, this passage that we've just read would have been jaw-dropping. On hearing this, they wouldn't have got all sentimental, thinking, oh, what a lovely picture, God the Father with a lovely beard, loving his son as he comes out of the water, and oh, that beautiful, fluffy, woofy, cushy, cushy, coo little dove flapping its wings. La oh, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that nice? Is that what you're thinking? Because if it is, let me tell you, that would not have been the reaction of Mark's audience in Eddie 65. More likely, they would have been saying, What? What on earth are you saying, Mark? You're going to get into big trouble doing things like this, saying things like that. And as it happens, history tells us he actually did. Not long after writing the book of Mark, almost certainly he was martyred for his faith, like many early Christians in Mark's day. As the uh, math math mathematician and, uh, and philosopher Blaise Pascal said, I believe those witnesses that, gets the, get, that get their throats cut. Think about that. So what was this radical, what was, what was so radical about this passage? Well, to many of us, describing God the Holy Spirit like a dove doesn't actually sound that unusual. It's, it's there in all the other Gospels, we're used to it, but it would have been very unusual to the people of Mark's day. In fact, really, there was only one other place in Orthodox Judaism where the Spirit of God was ever likened to a dove. And that was in the old Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Bible called the Targums, right at the very beginning of it actually, describing the creation of the world. And it read like this, And the earth was without form and empty, and darkness was on the face of the, of the deep, and the Spirit of God fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove. And God spoke, boom, 
let there be light. And what, that, and what that's describing is before the very foundation of the world, when there was no, uh, no sky, no earth, no sea, no conflicts, no iPhones, sorry Matthew, before there was certainly you or me, there was something, somebody else. There was God. But not just any old God, but, God, but, a, but there was a triune God. Three persons. That's what it's talking about. God the Father who spoke. God the Holy Spirit who flatters like a dove. And God's spoken word, the Son of God, Jesus. And although we... Actually, it wasn't Jesus then. They didn't know that. And although we didn't... And although we don't get this at first, what Mark is radically and masterfully doing here in this passage we've just read this morning is he's taking us way back, way back to the start, the very beginning of creation, and saying just like the beginning of the world was the project of the the triune God, one but three person God, Yahweh himself, just like that now, now that same triune God, God the Father, God the Spirit, God um, the Son, who, by the way, is Jesus... Ta-da, Mark says. That same God who you've been worshipping for centuries is the same triune God who has come in person now to bring about a new kingdom, a new humanity, recreation, restoration, redemption, salvation, new hope for this broken world. And it is all centred on the very person of Jesus. Wow. That's the bombshell. And so this morning, what I want to unpack really is the wonder of this Christian God, the triune God, the Trinity, the fact that God is a God who is totally one, but who also is forever, eternally existent in three persons, thoroughly biblical, thoroughly baffling. A God who is not more, is not, uh, more fundamentally one than he is three, yet not more fundamentally three than he is one. Get your head around that. In fact, the Bible teacher, uh, C.J. Mahaney, who many of you might have seen at Stoneley, uh, when he was talking about the difficulties his, his kids would ask him about the Bible, he said this, there is... There is oh. Um, C.J. Mahaney, when he was talking about difficult questions, that is, kids ask about the Bible, he said, this is the the most difficult question. There is one question more difficult to answer than the one about the Trinity, and that is, Daddy, what's a concubine? (laughs) It totally overloads our circuits, not concubines, the Trinity. It's very hard to grasp. It's escaped the church's most brilliant Mind, yet it is brimming, brimming, overpouring with life-shaping significance and importance. And so for a few moments, I'd like to share some of that with you uh, under essentially three headings. Firstly, there's a dance. Secondly, the greatest need of your soul is to enter that dance. And thirdly, Jesus invites you in. There's a dance, you need to enter it, and Jesus invites you in. So firstly, there's a dance. What am I talking about? Um, When the early Greek church were grappling with this biblical truth, the 
complexities of the Trinity, they coined a very helpful term uh, to describe it, and that was the word perichoresis, perichoresis, from which we get our word um, choreography from, uh, designing a dance. And the early church used this term perichoresis to describe this triune, wonderful God, Father, Spirit, and Son, as a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. So what was perichoresis? Well, if you were to draw, if you were to draw this on a flip chart, um, it, w- it would look something like this. Um, you would have the God, you would have God the Father here, you'd have God the Son here, God, God the Spirit here, and in our picture, each one would be orbiting around the other, centering around the other. All attention and focus would be on the other members, each one moving around the other two like a dance, perichoresis. Each one sacrificing their interests to make the other happy. C.S. Lewis, um, the writer of the Narnia books, uh, wrote this. He said, in Christianity, God is not uh, an impersonal thing like a force or a power, nor is it a static thing, nor even just one person. No, the Christian God is a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. Another uh, another guy, Cornelius Plantigna, or Neil Plantigna, uh, he put it like this, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit glorify each other. At the center of the universe, self-giving love is the dynamic currency of the Trinitarian, the Trinity, three-person life of God. The persons within God exalt, commune with, defer to one another. When early Greek Christians spoke of perichoresis in God, they meant that each divine person harbors the other at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. Do you get the picture? Do you see the beauty of it? And so rather than God being some old grumpy, some grumpy old man in the sky waiting to nuke us all, the biblical God is totally different. He's a community. At his very core, he's relational. His, he, is the, he is in his very essence love. Before the, before the creation of the world, if you're just a one-person God, well, you couldn't have loved anyone. You were on your own. Love wouldn't have been at the very nature, the very heart of that God. Power maybe, control maybe, but not love. However, Jesus says in John 17, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. You see, love isn't just something God does. It's who he is. Before anything existed, there was the loving community in the Godhead with each one, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, loving one another, deferring to one another, pouring out themselves to one another. Perichoresis, perichoresis. You see, some, um, some, today, some people today would say, God doesn't exist at all. And actually, if you explore that statement a little deeper, they don't really mean it. 
Because if you think that through, um, what's love anyway? If there's no God, if there's no design, uh, if there's no divine design, well, love is, I guess, just a set of chemical reactions, a, a survival of the fittest thing, maybe a, a way just to keep the human race going. Is that what you really think when you fall in love, when you love your child? Is it really that cold? When Josiah was born, just like all our other kids, actually, it was a precious moment, a God moment. Holding on to him carefully, tenderly, the six-pound, 13-ounce bundle of life in my arms. There was no way I could think of him as just an accident. No God. That the world around me was just some random, chaotic machine that didn't care whether I hated him or loved him. No way. In fact, as I held him, I couldn't stop saying thank you to someone, praying that that someone more powerful and wiser than me would protect him, would watch over him, would love him, as some of you guys have prayed over us this morning. In fact, all of my children have brought the very reality of this loving, triune God into my life, into our family's lives. So that's perichoresis, one God, perfect oneness, yet three persons offering themselves to one another in ceaseless, joy-filled, mutually submissive, generous, creative, self-giving love. Wow. So what? Who cares? C.S. Lewis again writes, what does it all matter? It matters more than anything else in the world. The whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-personal life is to be played out in each one of us. Each one of us has got to enter that pattern, take his or her place in that dance. There is no other way to the, to the happiness for which we were made. They are the great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. Jubilee, that's why it matters. Lewis is saying, Mark is saying, if self-giving love, perichoresis, the dance is at the heart of our creator God, then we who were made in his image were built for the very same thing, glorious, self-giving love in community with each other. You see, the very opposite of perichoresis, if you think about it, is self-centeredness. Is self-righteousness, is me, 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 where people remain stationary, if you were to draw it, unwilling to move, static, too fearful or vulnerable or just too proud to orbit around each other. In fact, more often we try and get people to orbit around us rather than orbit around them. It's all about what I can get from this interaction This relationship, this job, winning the argument, splitting up, telling him off, fighting or promotion. Me, me, static, motionless. That's what all that's about. No dance. In fact, the Bible goes as far as to say this is at the root of all humanity's problems. Terrorism, criminality, the breakdown of marriages and family, greed, poverty, dysfunctional relationships, addiction, bullying, neighbors... All of, neighbors from hell, all of that, I used to watch the program, all of that, all rooted in a heart totally opposite to perichoresis, fighting against the way things should be. 
A guy called Dallas Willard wrote this. He put it like this. God's aim in human history is the creation of an inclusive community of loving persons with him himself uh, included as its primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. That's what the Bible says you were built for. But it doesn't just stop there. It's not just about this community. The Bible says, Christianity says, the greatest need of your soul is to enter the divine dance, God's dance, not just the dance of human relationships, but a dance, wonderful dance with God. So question, what do you worship? Now that might seem a strange question, particularly if you don't believe in God or you're not, you don't have a faith. Uh, you might think, well, what are you talking about, Raj? I don't worship anything. I don't have a faith. I'm not so sure. You see, what's worship? Worship is when you assign or ascribe absolute value and worth to something or someone that totally energizes and engages you in every way. Worship is something that captivates your mind, your will, your emotions. Worship completely transforms your life. It determines how you live, what you do, what you think, what you feel, how you behave. When we worship something, we look to it for joy, for fulfillment, for security, for hope. What's worship? That's worship. So I'll ask you again, what do you worship? Because it's a very important question. Why? Because often we worship, we're worshipping the wrong things. The people, the things we worship are always unstable. They won't last. They don't give us what they promise on the tin. We live in a fallen and broken world, the Bible tells us. A lady called Becky Pippert, a journalist, writes this, Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance by other people is controlled by the acceptance of those she seeks to please. One thing, one thing is certain. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. Who is the Lord of your life? What do you worship? Because if you build your life on popularity, you know what? You'll be knocked down by what people say about you. If you build your life on money, you're going to be scared every time you look on the back, you look at your bank balance or, or the economy. If you build your life on getting asylum status, as a lot of people are, are moving in that process here, you'll be worried about every letter that comes through the door. If you build your life around your children, you'll be devastated when they go or become sick. If you build your life around looks, then you'll be scared every time you look in the mirror. <laughs> Again, a, a guy called Dallas Willard writes, ultimately every human circle is doomed to dissolution, failure, if it is not caught up in the life of the only genuine self-sufficient circle of life, that of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For that, for that circle is the only one that is truly and totally self-sufficient. And all other broken circles must ultimately find their healing there, if anywhere. Mark is telling us that ultimate reality is a community of persons who know and love one another joyfully, generously, sacrificially, that, that this is what the universe, God, history, life is all about. P 
perichoresis, this glorious divine dance, and that there is no other way to the happiness for which you were made. All other happiness is temporary and it will fall. As one of the early church leaders, Augustine, said, if there is a God who created you, then the deepest chambers of your soul simply cannot be filled up by anything less. That's the deal. So, what do we do to have to get there? What do we do to have to get into this dance, be part of this dance? What things, what, what do-its do we need to get through to get to this dance? Answer, nothing. Jesus has already done it. He's the one who invites you into the dance. He's the one who says, take my hand. The biggest question is whether you're going to say yes or or not. So thirdly, Jesus invites you to the dance. The Apostle Paul tells us this in Romans 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does that mean? Well, remember the flip chart, the diagram, uh, what we were saying right at the beginning, the fact that Human souls fight against entering the dance. We want to remain static. We want to remain motionless, unwilling to orbit around God, too proud, too afraid to give ourselves to him, selfish, self-centered, me, me, me. Well, that's what the Bible calls sin. A guy called Soren Kierkegaard put it like this. Human beings were not, made, were not only made to believe in God in some general way, but to love him supremely, center their lives on him above anything else and build their very identities on him. Anything other than that is sin, not being in the dance. In fact, Jesus said it's what comes out of a person that pollutes him or her, obscenities, lust, thefts, murders, um, adulteries, greed, depravity, deceptive dealings, mean looks, slander, arrogance, foolishness. I think that pretty much includes us all. All these, Jesus says, are vomit from the heart. A heart that is in rebellion towards God. And bottom line, bottom line, sin and God don't mix. Yeah, we might get all shirty about that. We might get on on our high horses. But think about it. Our triune God is a God of justice. And righteousness. He always does the right thing. As we've said, it's in his very nature. That's why we worship him. He's not going to tolerate uh, the things that we do. He's not going to be able to sweep it under some carpet in the cosmos somewhere. No. In fact, it breaks his heart. Sin breaks his heart. God knows there are consequences to our sin. Um, God understands that our sin requires justly a response. Our sin demands justice. In fact, any other response from God just wouldn't do. Yet get this, Romans 5, jaw-dropping. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He left his dance and he entered our dance. He started, if you think about it, revolving around us. He circled us. This God of the universe came and revolved around us. You see, see the end of this passage. 
Um, it says this, at once the Spirit uh, sent him. So Jesus come out of the water, the Spirit, the dove, and all that. And then at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. He knew, and, he, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. That's what it says. Why stick the wild animals in? None of the other Gospels talk about wild animals. Why here? I'll tell you why. It was precisely at this time new Christians were being fed to wild animals for their faith. There was a real fear, a real suffering and persecution going on. Some of you from different nations will have experienced some of that persecution firsthand. But get this. Jesus, what it's getting at, Jesus, God himself, left his position of heavenly glory and sinless perfection, perfect, perfect perichoresis, the eternal, joyful, wonderful dance of heaven to come to earth and become flesh. He moved from a place where there was no sin at all to a place like Bethlehem, like Jerusalem, like Middlesbrough, like Stockton. The Son of God laid aside his majesty and became a baby who fell over, vomited, soiled his nappies, grazed his knees. He walked in our shoes. He faced temptations of all kind, misunderstanding, bereavement, rejection. What's the love of God? That is. He bent down. He stooped over. He entered your world. He left his dance and shouted out to us, Take my hand. Will you dance with me? And on the cross, with welts on his face, ripped flesh across his back, physically unrecognizable, abandoned, denied and betrayed by those he loved, shouting out to his father in distress in heaven, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Stripped, tortured, crucified. Now on him was the wrath of God for all of our lies and lust and pride and envy and greed. Breaking utterly Jesus' dance that he'd had forever with his Father and, and, the, and, and, and the Spirit. Which he'd experienced and exulted in since before the very creation of the world. On the cross, he, Jesus, took what should have come to us. He paid the price. He lived, loved us so much that he didn't give us what we deserved. And he took totally what he didn't deserve. Do you get it? Do you see it now? Do you see the beauty of it? That's love. Not just a bunch of flowers kind of love or a box of chocolates kind of love. Real, sacrificial going all the way for you kind of love. Shouting out um, to all of us everywhere the, cry, the great cry of victory. It is finished. John 3.16 sums that up and says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the message of Christianity. Listen, will you say yes to this invitation? Will you accept his sacrifice for you? 
Will you take his hand? Will you trust him for all you are? Will you let him declare over you as his father declared over him? You, 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 you are my son. You are my daughter whom I love. In you I am well pleased. Amazing, amazing grace. Say yes to him. Take his hand. Join him in the glorious dance of eternity. Let's pray. If the band can come up, that would be great. Yeah, Lord, I thank you for all of us here. I thank you um, that this message is real, that this message is life-changing, that you came from your glorious throne to be flesh and blood, that you came to deal with our biggest problems, sin, not honoring you, not putting you first, our selfishness, our greed. You came and nailed all of our difficulties, all of our worries, all of, our, all of the things that get between you and us. You nailed those to your cross and you took them into your very soul. You took hell into your very soul for us so that we could be set free. And I pray, Lord Jesus, for people here this morning who've never heard this message before, I pray by your Spirit that you will come and speak to them, that you will come and change their heart, that you will show them that your hand is stretched out all the way. Come with me, my child. Join this dance that you were created for. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship this King, shall we, this Jesus.